welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, we've been in this series called Eat This Book. Uh, so I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11. Uh, we're going to start there. And we've really been exploring the story of the scriptures, the narrative of the Bible. Uh, so, of course, if you're going to do that, you start in Genesis and creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the story of Jacob and his sons and Joseph and his brothers. Uh, and if, if, if you know the story, uh, as Genesis ends and Exodus begins, we find the people of God in Egypt, in exile. Moses comes and rescues them, leads them out of Egypt uh, into the, basically the wilderness where they wander for a bit. Uh, and then uh, Joshua and the story of uh, the coming into the land of Canaan. And then uh, uh, this, this constant battle between uh, living faithfully to Yahweh and kind of falling into uh, worshiping of different idols and gods that are, that are around them in neighboring countries. And so the book of Judges is this kind of constant back and forth of God sending judges and the people living faithfully and then not and living faithfully and not. And then it moves into really the, the kingdoms and the monarchy of Israel where we have Saul, the first king of Israel, and then David, his son, and Solomon, his son. And that's where we ended last week. Now, for me, I'm a, a bit of a visual learner, and I don't know about you, but when I get to Kings and First and Second Kings and Chronicles, really are kind of the same story told by two different vantage points, I always get confused, like, who's the king, and where are they, and which one? Is it north and south? So I found this little map here this week, and I wanted to show it to you guys. Uh, totally helpful for me, and so if it's just for me, then uh, you're, you're coming along for a ride. Uh, so top right, so this is basically like, uh, if you think of Israel as a nation, and the kings of Israel, uh, this is essentially the map. So top right there in blue is Saul and David and Solomon. And really, when you think about the, the nation of Israel and their story in the scriptures, there's a very short period of time in which they are a united kingdom, where it's a monarchy, where there's one king. And it's just those three, Saul, Saul David, and Solomon. And then after Solomon, which is where we left off last week, uh, these two, the, the son, uh, Rehoboam, and then this other guy, Jeroboam, uh, takes, takes over. If you don't know, the kingdom of Israel is made up of 12 tribes, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob. And in, in the event that this, or when this split happens, it's essentially 10 tribes has become the northern kingdom, which is, remains to be called Israel, and two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, become the southern kingdom, which is just referred to as Judah. So you have Israel, and you have Judah north and south. And this is where we pick up or where we left off last week with the end of Solomon's reign. And if you remember last week, we talked about exile. We talked about Egypt. Solomon finds himself in this unique position of being the wisest one who's ever walked the planet, according to the scriptures. And yet, Egypt, this idea of Egypt, exile, Egypt being a location, but also being a spiritual state of being, that it is so very near even for someone like Solomon. And so we find that Egypt, or, or Solomon, finds himself, and then the nation of Israel finds itself in Egypt, so to speak, or exile. So this is where we're going to jump in today. Now, let me shift gears for just a moment and say, uh, there are some things in life that require absolute, singular focus or devotion, like your utmost attention and devotion. Uh, I was thinking about some of the things that might qualify in that category. Certainly marriage would be one of them. In order for marriage to work, in order for it to do what it's supposed to do, there has to be this singularity, this focus, this devotion, this allegiance that is mono. You know, it's only one. Uh, from what I know of childbirth, because, well, I'm a dude, um, 
childbirth and my experience of, of that or, or my, uh, my take on that experience is that, man, that's, that requires like single focus. Moms, can I get an amen? Yes, no, yeah. You know, it's like one thing only for, you know, right now it's like this and nothing else. You know, tractor beams, that kind of deal. Starting this church in a lot of ways for me has been, um, I have found myself in these moments where it's like, uh, you know, single focus, devotion, allegiance, like this is the thing that I'm pouring my energy and effort into, you know, vocationally, nothing else. Um, I was a youth pastor for a while, and there was this thing we did called Moose. Uh, some of you actually went to Moose, a couple of you in the room here. Uh, it was, the, it, you know, what is it with youth pastors, right? Here's, here's what Moose stood for. It's M-U-U-U-C-E, okay? Most unbelievable ultimate urban camping experience. <laughs> what? Come on, really? I inherited that name. We couldn't change it. Uh, but Moose, it was this massive deal. We invited like all these covenant junior hires. So 750 junior hires descended on our building and then trashed it for three days. And then we sent them back. It was unbelievable, epic, you know. And I was in charge of the stage, the lighting, and everything that happened. And so before Moose, it was like, that was all I could focus on. It was wake up early, stay up late, all about Moose and everything that happened there. Some things in life require this single focus and attention. And I want to suggest that it's no different when we're talking about following Jesus, when we're talking about a relationship with God. I mean, think about what God says in the scriptures. You shall have no other gods before me, Yahweh tells Israel. There's only one. You shall have no other gods. There shall be nothing in the place of. No one else sits in this seat, so to speak. He, the Israelites are spoken of in, in this bride and groom kind of fashion that Israel is wed to Yahweh. So there's this covenantal relationship where it's one and one and not others. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You can't, you can't hold your hand to the plow and look back. It's like, if you're going to follow me, it's... It's, it's this or nothing. So there seems to be this kind of single focus idea. One of my favorite lines in Braveheart, you know, they're, they're married, they're getting married out in secret and they're, they're the, they say their vows to one another and it's, I will love you, you and no other. You know, that great Scottish accent, which I won't try to give you because you'll all be like, what? Sounds like, yeah, you, you and no other. Last week, we ended with Solomon, this, the son of David, and we talked about God warns the Israelites. He warns the, uh, the, the kings of Israel, don't go back to Egypt. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that literally says, do not go back to Egypt. Do not take horses, which we found Solomon was doing. Many of them, chariots, weapons of war. It says, do not take many wives or foreign wives and all of these things Solomon does. And yet, the wisest of all of them, Solomon, falls prey to this temptation of Egypt, which we find is just always right next door. So I want to pick up the story in the book of Kings, chapter 11. And this is really um, um, the, the end of Solomon's life and the beginning of what's about to happen with the Israelite kings. Um, I won't read this part, but the next king of Israel becomes Rehoboam, his son. And this guy's a, he's a mean dude. Essentially, the, the nation comes together and says, like, hey, can we, can we do this peacefully? And he essentially says, no, like, uh, I'm going to drive this sucker really hard, and you're all essentially my minions, and, and they basically revolt. So this is the precursor to that. King Solomon, however, verse 1, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, 
Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives. I think that qualifies as more than one. 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I will not uh, do the patriarchal move and talk about how women lead us astray. Come on. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, which, by the way, they did like child sacrifices. That was Molech. And the Israelites were like participating in this deal. Gone a long ways from where they ought to have been. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Pray with me if you would. God, as we... uh, um, gather each week, we take time and space to hear the story of the scriptures, to hear um, this story which you have chosen in some mysterious and divine way to reveal yourself to us in and through. And so God, as we study this, as we ponder it, as we think about it, as we let the text speak, I pray that you might have a word for us. Wherever we're all coming from, the different places and stories and situations, would you meet us here today, we pray in your name. Amen. I want to suggest that the possibility or the idea that Israel's downfall and what becomes the dividing of the kingdom of Israel and ultimately the exile of the Israelite people in Assyria and then in Babylon, you can trace back to the divided heart of Solomon and the divided heart of the leaders of Israel. That we find a divided kingdom, but the line- as you follow it back, it goes back to the divided heart of an individual and what that interplay looks like as far as the 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 story of God's people and and this morning I want to I want to allow the text to kind of speak because I'm starting with the assumption that this text is more than just two-dimensional it's more than just black and white words on a page it's more than just a story about a group of people 2,000 years ago but that this is God's word in some way and it's alive and active and if we have ears to hear it God would like to speak something to us this morning and so I'm starting with that assumption and I want to just look at this text as I sat with it this week I asked the question what is it about Solomon or what why is Solomon's heart divided and so I want to ask that question and just let, let the text say what it wants to say. So uh, if, if you start in verse 1 and you begin to read, you find that the text, I think, is offering the possibility that relationships can and often do become the source of a divided heart. That our interaction with other human beings actually becomes the source of or at least a, an aid in our hearts becoming divided, our hearts becoming persuaded, our hearts becoming 
dissuaded from the things that we say we're committed to. I can think in my own life of a number of different relationships. I had a, a roommate in college uh, who, ironically enough, ended up becoming a pastor and just grew and changed and like God did, is, is, has done amazing things in this guy's life. But at this point in, in, in time, my relationship with this person was just really, it was not good for me. In fact, I remember one time Laura had said to me, there was one other guy that I had, that I had breakfast with every week and I'd spend time with, with this guy and she'd say, did you spend time with so-and-so? I'd say, yeah, I did actually. Uh, and when I spent time with this other guy, my roommate, she'd say, did you spend time with so-and-so because you're acting like a total jerkwad? You know, have you ever had someone in your life like that? Like, when you spend time with them, they actually begin to, in- do you remember your grandparents when they would say your grandma, I can remember my grandma saying this, bad company corrupts good character, good morals. Come on, gang. Wake up. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? It's true. It's true. I can think of girls that I dated in junior high and high school. I remember one, Wendy, uh, we'll just remain, we won't, won't say, Laura always says to me, she's like, what if one of them shows, like, what if somebody shows up, or what if they listen to podcast or something? Like, you are smart, Laura. I'm, we'll call her Wendy for the sake of anonymity. <laughs> I remember this one girl, just... I mean, this was like, you know, early on in my following Jesus, I had just decided to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And this gal just, man, she was a cutie. And, uh, you know, hey, I was junior high boy or, you know, 14 or something like that, doing what you do, making out and what, whatever. <laughs> did not help me follow Jesus. Did not. I mean, that's kind of an you know, anecdotal, you know, cutesy story about, you know, adolescence. But it's absolutely possible for all of us in this room to have relationships in our lives, when the, the people that are close to our hearts, to who you really are and what you've decided your life to be about, and if you have made a commitment to follow Jesus, there is a very real possibility that there can be people in our lives that will draw us away from or persuade us otherwise. And I think as we look at Solomon and the story of Solomon, we find that there these relationships that his life was littered with persuaded him in other directions, and his heart became divided. I mean, we all know what a cute guy or a cute gal can do to your heart, right? (laughs) No? Okay. (laughs) But let me be so bold. Let me be so bold. And this is a little youth pastor-ish. I know, I get it. But for those of you who have yet to make a vow to another person and commit your life to somebody... Can I challenge you to think deeply about what does it mean to find a person who actually puts your commitment and relationship to God before them? What does that look like? Because if you've said yes to Jesus and you want to follow Jesus, then Jesus says, listen, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. Let the dead bury their dead. Essentially, when you say yes to me, it's the forsaking of all others. It's this person and this relationship is the seat of priority in my heart. And if that's true, then I want to challenge you to think about when you're looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with. Again, I know this is youth pastorish, I get it, but this is this is this is this is the wisdom of the proverbs. To find someone who who allows you to make that decision and that priority a priority and who comes underneath that and supports that instead of tries to pull away from that, and so as to not leave out everybody else in the room, uh, what does it look like and what does it mean for us? The people who are closest to us, who we allow access to the very heart of hearts, for those to be people who encourage 
and lift up and, and, and help us live into the commitments that we've made. And even if you're not a person who said yes to Jesus, if you have priorities in your own life and you've said, these are the things that I want my life to be about, then wisdom would say you should have the people closest to you who support those things if they're life-giving. It's just wisdom. I think as we read the text, it certainly puts forth the possibility that relationships have the, the potential to lift up or, or draw us to God or away from. If you read verse 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and he was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. I think relationships have the possibility, and I want to suggest that age, as we grow older, the possibility for our hearts to become divided and hardened becomes more and more real. And I, I, gang, I get this, right? I'm 35, you know, I'm a young pastor, like, hey, who, danger, like Will Robinson, you might not want to go there. Uh, and I thought about this all week, and I was like, this is important, and I think it's real. And I've never been one to back out of a corner. I've never been one to back down from a difficult conversation. And I hope that you guys know me well enough and know my heart well enough to know what I'm, getting, what I'm trying to get at here. And so I'm going to just go for it. I've worked in churches for 13 years. Since I was 22, I graduated from college in 1999. Party like it's 1999, baby. <laughs> I've worked in four different churches. And I can say, from my experience... On, and I say this with confidence, on average, the older a person is and the more that they have experienced in life, whether that's connected to age or not, but the older a person is and the more that they have experienced in life, often the harder their heart becomes. On the one hand, I totally get it, right? I mean, mathematically, the longer you're here, the more you're in touch with or presented, uh, or, or you, the more you might experience the horrible things that we experience in life, death and betrayal and harsh words and people walking out. And the longer you're here mathematically, the probability is that you'll experience more of that. And some of us just get dealt a really bad hand and we get all of that in the first you know, 18 years of our lives. Be that as it may. Even after 35 years, I look back and I, I know now that in places my heart is not as tender as it once was. And I can think of countless situations where I sat across the table from somebody or I had an encounter with somebody and I just asked the question, how did your heart get so hard? And then I think of people like Miriam Adams. Miriam Adams was, she had to be close to 90 or, or uh, you know, well into her 80s. One of these just saints, right? Uh, you've all got the church lady pictured in your head, okay? Like, times 100, Miriam. Miriam, uh, she would sit in, in, you know, right over here uh, in, the, in the worship center, and we did this retreat one time with, with high schoolers. So we take, like, you know, 150 high schoolers up to camp up in northern Minnesota, and we're like, hey, we need some volunteers. We need some people to come and help and, you know, serve meals and do all this kind of stuff. And Miriam Adams is like, I want to go. I'm thinking, I don't, I don't have a liability form for this kind of a situation. You know, it's like, you, you have it with kids and 18-year-olds, like parents, you know, hey, we're going to do some crazy stuff, please don't sue us, but I'm not sure what to do with this one. They're like, all right, sure, cool. So Miriam Adams comes, like 85-year-old lady. She comes on this high school retreat. You guys ever seen the sumo suits? Have you seen those before? 
Do you remember those things? They're like these big, huge, puffy suits that you sort of have to lay on the floor and then climb in, and then they Velcro you in, and there's this big padded mat, and so it's like, you know, sumo against sumo suit, and you jump in these things, and then you just wrestle, and you'd sumo fight. So we decided we rented these things for this retreat, and we get them up there, and uh, at the meal times we had this, you know, big tournament. We'd play Eye of the Tiger, and the whole, bah, 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 you know, the whole deal is this big, epic deal. And we had this tournament throughout the whole weekend of, of, of this retreat, you know, uh, church against church and that, and then the finals was Sunday, Sunday morning during, lunch, or during brunch, and it was this huge, big deal. Well, Miriam Adams comes to me, and she's like, I want a sumo. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, you cannot make this stuff up. So who am I to deny this 85-year-old grandma who's like, I want a sumo. I'm like, all right, let's get you in there. And then the whole, you know, we tell the whole camp, and they're like, she should sumo you. And I'm like, oh, this is going downhill really fast. <laughs> so we get Miriam suited up in the sumo suit. Like, the whole camp's there, and, and then I get in the sumo suit. And I've never been one to let somebody win. I mean, I just don't roll. That's not how I roll. In fact, my, Laura and I decided to take up tennis one time. And uh, we played, and I'm just like, bam, bam, you know, and she's on the other side going, seriously, dude, just chill out. You know, can we just play to play? And my response to her was, why? <laughs> like, if there's nothing to win, what's the point? <laughs> Don't do that, boys or girls, like, not a good move. I've learned my lesson on that one. So, but I decided I would let Miriam Adams win. So we, you know, we're sumo wrestling or whatever, and I go down, and I'm not kidding. Like, Miriam just, like, top turnbuckle, off the deal, just, whoa, boom. The whole place goes nuts, and then I realize I have an 85-year-old grandma lying on top of me on a sumo suit. Just like, this is awkward. Miriam, Miriam Adams. I, I just, I met a buddy of mine at a coffee shop this week, and I was telling him about this, and I was just struck by this text as Solomon grew old, his heart turned cold. And he's like, there's this lady named Mabel. Same kind of deal, you know. She's like 90. This church uh, is like average age of 27. So very, very young church. And Tim was, you know, noticing this, this lady, Mabel. And finally, you know, there every week, you know, sitting in the same spot, the deal. And finally one day he walks up to her and he's like, Mabel, do you like the music that we play here? And she goes, oh, no, I hate it. I just turned down my hearing aids. <laughs> and then she said, Tim, do you know how long I have prayed that this church would be filled with God's spirit and filled with people who want to know Jesus? Do you know how long I have wanted that? So uh, play on. I remember a guy named Miguel I met him in Humboldt Park, Chicago. He was the, the leader of the Latin Kings gang in Chicago. If you know anything about Humboldt Park, it is wicked. It's brutal. And this is one of the worst of the worst places in Chicago and one of the gangs that's notorious. This guy led this gang. And I met him after he had come to know Jesus, and I could not believe the things that we watch as entertainment. This guy lived. And yet his heart was so soft. And I think about Miriam, I think about Mabel, I think about this guy, and I think about the life that they bring to the communities that they were a part of. The captivating, compelling, I mean, have you met somebody like this whose heart was just so big and so soft, even after having experienced all the things that they would have experienced? And I, I used to think if I could clone Miriam, I would. I'd make a hundred of her because the kingdom would move with people like that. The work of God in the world would move with people whose hearts are that soft. And it's led me to this place where 
I would say with conviction to you today. However you find yourself there, those of you who have experienced a lot of life or just a lot of life in a short amount of time, I would say to you, we need you. Desperately. This community, the people of God need you. I know sometimes you look around and you see a lot of young faces and you think, I'm not sure where I fit here. And I just want to say publicly, I've said it to many of you over coffee, but I would say it from the front. We desperately, desperately need your voices and your hearts. And more than that, we need your hearts to be soft. And so I would challenge you this morning, would you have the courage and the boldness to pray, God, would you soften my heart? Because there are people, I am, I am astounded at the stories that sit in these seats every week. The things that I hear and the pain that I, that I hear of people's lives and broken relationships and parents who have walked out, there are people in here who, who need, who are, who, their only hope for somebody to act as a surrogate mother, father, aunt, uncle, grandma, or grandpa is right here. And so I would invite you to give your hearts away, to ask God to soften them and then just pour them out to the people in this community. And I, I have a sneaky suspicion that the work of God in the world will move. It will move. And many of you are doing that, and I, I, I get to watch it, and it is so beautiful. And I want to say thank you. Uh, we need more of it, more of it. Age can be something, the longer we're here, the, the, the higher the probability that our hearts become callous. Relationships have the possibility. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 14, the text says, The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now, without having any kind of conspiracy theory kind of sermon, I would go as far as to say that the Hebrew text wants to say that something is seriously wrong here with that number. Yes, numbers are very important. And this is to say that something is very, very off. Not including the revenues from merchants and traders from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lemadon. Then the king made a great throne covered with... Anybody get into Game of Thrones? I'm seeing like Game of Thrones here. I'm reading it right now. I cannot put it down. The king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back uh, had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All of Solomon's goblets were gold. All of the household articles in the palace were gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. I think you could go as far as to say that possessions often divide our hearts. The things that we have access to, whether it be money or possessions or things or jobs or prestige, that these things have the potential. And we've talked about this before, and we'll probably talk about it again, because we live in the richest place on the planet. And so for us as Americans, stuff is everywhere. And we all have way too much stuff. 
and the possibility of those things grabbing a hold of our hearts in ways that they take up space that they ought not take up is absolutely possible and often present. There is this, there is this reality the things that we have in our lives, they're neutral, right? They're neutral in and of themselves. But the moment we stake claim on them and we say, that's mine, they take on a life of their own and they say, that's mine back. And they no longer become neutral. They no longer become tools that we can leverage for good and for beauty and for love and for the sake of God's work in the world. They become things that t- attach themselves to our hearts. When we say, that's mine, they mine us back. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I got a graduation present from, gotta love open houses, by the way. Can I get an amen for the Minnesota open house? Love that bit, you know? Uh, got some money from open house and wanted to get a guitar. So, you know, take, my, take some money that I had earned and some money I got from this and go to the guitar store with my, I remember my mom was there and I bought my first guitar. I cut my teeth on this guitar. I learned how to play Pharaoh, Pharaoh and Blind Man Stood by the Road on this guitar. You know, I mean, this thing was like, yeah, come on now. Yeah, you were there. <laughs> I mean, this was like my baby. And I remember taking this, we took a trip to, uh, to Jamaica and uh, we stayed at this one hotel at the end of our trip, and we were there for a couple days. And uh, I remember seeing this guy who would sit at the front of the hotel, and he would play this guitar, which was just a battered piece of junk. I mean, you could hardly call it a guitar. It had six strings, and it was mildly in tune, but it was not a guitar. And I remember the first time I saw this guy, I heard this voice, give it away. And I knew exactly, you, guys, you know that moment? Have you had a moment like that when you just sense God's presence, or you just know that, okay, I should listen, give it away, I heard. And I'm like, no way, (laughs) that's mine. I bought that guitar. I do the work of the Lord with this guitar. You can't ask me to give it away. That did not go well. And just over and over, every time we'd come and we'd go, we'd come and we'd go, this man would sit there and I'd hear, give it away. And it was a formative moment for me in my life about the things that I possess, the things that I say are mine. And I've failed miserably on a hundred other accounts. And that one, I listened. And I'm so glad that I did. Because it allowed me to to live from a place of open-handedness where the things that I have, they're not mine. I hold them loosely. And God uses them. Our possessions can be something that, that ask for our hearts in ways that they ought not. As we close, I'm going to ask Ben and the worship band to come, and they're just going to lead us in a, a time of singing and, and worship together. But as I was thinking about this text, and thinking about Solomon in this kingdom, I just kept thinking about God's hope. Like what God hoped for and dreamt for when he comes to Abram and Sarai and says, leave your mother and your father and your kin and leave and go to a land that I will show you. Like what was, God's, what was in God's heart for this group of people who would become the, the evidence for, the picture of the, the ambassadors of Yahweh in the world and then to find them here in this moment on the brink of being divided and then being exiled And I just kept thinking about Jesus praying in John 17. 
And this, t- this whole chapter he spends in prayer for God's people. And if you don't know the, the text, I think it's, it's, it, it might be a bit uh, surprising that Jesus' prayer, if you could sum it up, is for unity. For an undivided people who represent God in the world. And as we sit here this morning, I don't think it's any, I don't have to convince anybody that there's plenty of things for us to divide ourselves over and that we have divided ourselves. I remember being in a church where we had this huge long debate about how we would take communion. (laughs) How stupid is that? Like, it's gotta be intention. You gotta take the wafer and dip it. And if you don't do that, it's not communion. unbelievable amounts of things. And I recognize that there are times when, when there's, there needs to be a stand that, that is taken and a stake that's put in the ground. I get all that. But the dumb things that we argue over and fight over and divide ourselves over. And so I want to close just by reading a portion of John 17. And I would ask maybe that you would join me in prayer and imagine yourself looking in on this moment where Jesus, the representative of God who comes and lives and dies on behalf of you and I. And if he, takes, if he could pray for anything, this is what he prays for. And this is his prayer for us, for his people. And so just imagine that moment and what that might have been like. And I want to offer that as I close. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God, as we worship, as we are with one another, and we study your scriptures and open ourselves up and our hearts up to your voice as we sing these songs. God, would you draw us together even in this moment that we're about to have, would you make our voice one? Would you take all of the stories, all of the people, all of the experiences, the pain and the hurt, the joy and the love that exists in this room right now and would you make us one voice? Would you make us one group of people who embody the resurrected Jesus in the world. And would you speak to us now? You can find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakeningcommunity or on Twitter at awakeningcommunity. See you next time.